Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 25. We have a full house this week. It's myself, Gladys, Mark, and Sarah. We also have a special guest, Chuck Enstall, who's here to talk to us about some of the common questions he gets from customers relating to Azure security. But before we get to Chuck, uh, let's take a look at the news. Uh, Mark, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, just starting off, there's uh, an expansion of our PCI DSS certification. Um, we got the link in there. I'm not a huge uh, person that's uh, detailed into uh, the PCI DSS certs, but um, they did expand uh, the scope of it. The other one, uh, the next one that we've got is um, there's a, a report that uh, put out there, and we I got a link to the blog that kind of describes it. Um, we're, we're definitely starting to see an increase in the firmware um, layer attacks. You know, like every piece of software, there is vulnerabilities and all the all the joy of that. Um, so wanted to make sure that folks were there. It's a nice awareness piece there and um, also talks a little bit about how we uh, focus on that with our secu secured core uh, capabilities within Windows. Next one is there's uh, obviously there's been a, a, a fairly uh, decent um, impact from the exchange vulnerabilities that were uh, published uh, not too long ago. Um, our Dart team actually recorded our detection response team uh, that does incident response with customers, recorded a really nice um, overview of the attacks and how they work and, uh, and what to do about it. And so wanted to make sure that you all saw that uh, YouTube video um, is a big one. From the things that I'm working on, um, we're, we're starting to take a look at the Azure Security Benchmarks and what are the things we can do to improve it. So I would love to get any feedback, hit me up on LinkedIn or Twitter, uh, if there's anything that you're looking for in particular. Um, we haven't uh, really locked on the specifics plan yet, but we're thinking about through a shared responsibility model, we've gotten a, a decent amount of feedback of, okay, who does what, how much of this is Microsoft, how much is this is sort of the enterprise identity or network enterprise-wide teams across workloads, and how much of this you know, security best practice would land on a specific workload owner. And so we're, we're thinking about that and how do we represent that. So love to get some feedback uh, from you all on that one. The, uh, the next one is the cyber reference architecture, the very big complicated diagram that has uh, all Microsoft's uh, cyber capabilities, or at least the main ones, um, we can't fit them all on it anymore, is getting ready to come out. It uh, can't give you a specific date, but it should be a matter of weeks from the recording of this podcast. So uh, we'll be talking about that, I'm sure, as, uh, uh, as it gets even closer, but wanted to give uh, you all a heads up that that updated version is coming. I continually get questions on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and whatnot for that. And then the last one is um, a little bit more for, it kind of illustrates one of the things that we're thinking about as we're looking at um, uh, working on some DevSecOps guidance is um, we, we're starting to appreciate how important it is when you do DevSecOps to look at the world through the lens of developers, security people, and operations, because each has a very important goal in an application. One is that it meets the business needs, fit for purpose, you know, actually enables the, the organization. You know, that's the, the dev world kind of representing the business. The ops is the reliability, stability, maintainability kind of elements. And then security is that it stays safe and it you know meets all those security assurances of confidentiality, integrity, availability. We're really thinking about like that need to merge the cultures. And the last one was just an article that was a really interesting viewpoint that showed how what the world looks like if you try, if you let the developers win every argument. Um, and you know, the world is equally as dystopian as if you let the security people win every argument as well. Um, but it was just an interesting uh, insight there that I found uh, interesting. So I thought that would share that with the group. Hello, everyone. 
besides Microsoft releasing an enormous amount of security information as part of the Ninja training, um, which I have mentioned in previous podcasts, we have been expanding the learning path we provide within the Microsoft learning site. Uh, that's www.microsoft.com learn. Since during our last podcast, Michael went through a high level view of the site capabilities, I wanted to quickly mention the SC-200 training provided within that site. It has eight parts. Uh, focusing on uh, different security solutions uh, that includes uh, Azure Sentinel, Azure Security Center, Azure Defender, uh, Defender for Endpoint, and others. So be sure to check out uh, this material as it's an excellent resource for those of you that want to start in the IT security field or even expand further knowledge uh, to support cloud security services. In addition, uh, last year, Microsoft opened many learning paths in link LinkedIn learning to be delivered for free uh, until June 2021. Well, Microsoft is extending access to those learning paths until end of 2021. So make sure to add those as part of your learning as well. Another thing that I wanted to share is that EDR support for Windows 2019 has been added to Microsoft Defender for Endpoint. This means that now the Windows 2019 VMs uh, can have this uh, capability enabling them, which extend uh, the further the capabilities that are included within Azure Defender. So make sure to enable these um, if you have uh, the service already. Also, um, as part of identity, I, I, which I'm going to share a couple of news in here, customers can now quickly uh, configure single sign-on and user provisioning uh, to AWS single sign-on using the Azure AD app gallery. This means that now AWS single sign-on can be quickly uh, connected to Azure AD for centralized access management of AWS resources. And of course, it means that the end users can sign into AWS single sign-on using the Azure AD credentials to access all their assigned AWS resources. The next uh, identity related news is that the AD Federation Services Activity and Insight Report is now available in the Azure portal. Uh, which lets customers quickly identify which applications are capable of being upgraded to Azure AD. It assesses uh, all the AD application for compatibility with Azure AD, checks for any issues, and gives guidance on preparing individual applications for migration to Azure AD. And finally, I wanted to talk about the new Azure AD uh, login that has been uh, enabled or is on preview. This include provision and alerts uh, for service principle, extending some of the logs are extending the ADFS login and even providing uh, some signing alerts related to MFF. A whole bunch of stuff took my interest this week. Uh, the first one is uh, GitHub Advanced Security is now available in beta. 
the way I looked at this when I saw it is it kind of reminds me of Azure Security Center, but for your code. Uh, so if you've got uh, code in GitHub, uh, it will actually scan over your repos looking for common issues, and uh, it will give you essentially a, a dashboard, which gives you a nice idea of sort of, you know, are you improving your security, you know, what issues are being found and so on. Uh, absolutely love that. They've now added the ability to do uh, scanning for secrets in private repos. Uh, this is kind of nice because, you know, we we hear on more than one occasion where someone's embedded a credential and then uses that credential, um, you know, in, you know, during uh, normal operations. And then they happen to you know, check that credential into GitHub. Um, so now the attackers have access to the, to the credential. So that's also available um, in the uh, GitHub advanced security. Another topic that is related to GitHub is a thing we call CodeQL. It's a code query language. Uh, the best way of looking at CodeQL is it's a way of querying code, looking for specific kinds of patterns, as you would say a SQL query, but for code. Um, so what we've done is we've open sourced the CodeQL queries that are used to hunt for Solarigate type activity. Um, this is really cool. I'm a huge fan of CodeQL. Best way I think of, of, of thinking about CodeQL is, again, imagine SQL, but for querying code and querying kinds of constructs in code. Like if you see this kind of data and this kind of code construct, then we may have a SQL injection vulnerability here, those kinds of things. The other nice thing about CodeQL is it really democratizes these rules that are used for finding new classes of vulnerability. Um, we have um, up on GitHub a plethora of rules that have been written by other people for finding specific kinds of vulnerabilities. So if you're a developer or you run a development shop or you're in charge of a development team, you really should spend some time looking at CodeQL um, in GitHub. Um, another thing that took my, my interest this week was we now have in IoT Hub, we made some security changes. Um, you're now uh, able to sort of fine tune the way some of your IP filters work. Uh, you must add your computer's IP address into the allow list now to make it to make it work correctly so that you can actually access it through the portal. Um, historically, that wasn't the case. And also we've made some um, pretty significant uh, networking changes, running IoT Hub using Azure Portal, using clients that are in the same VNet as a, an IoT Hub private link. Uh, so do be aware of some of the networking changes that have come down the pike for um, IoT Hub. For some reason, we seem to be getting a lot of changes, uh, updates in SQL and Synapse. Uh, one of the ones that I noticed this week was dynamic data masking granular permissions. Dynamic data masking allows you to mask out certain kinds of sensitive data. It's not encryption. It's not really a, a air quotes security control. But it's there certainly to help accident, accidental um, disclosure of sensitive data. So, for example, in, in the US with a social security number, you could tell SQL Server to say when data from this column is returned, it's a social security number. So, you know, mask out all the characters except the last four digits. We now have the ability to set the policies at a much more granular level. So you could set the actual permissions and the policies that are in place right down to um, at the schema level, at the table level, and right down to the column level as well. So nice to see some uh, fine tuning of that ability. For media services, we've added a whole bunch of new security features there as well, uh, including things like customer managed key support and managed identities. So again, uh, you know, this is one of the three main areas or two examples of three of the main areas that we see happening across the board. Increased use of uh, managed identities, and increased use of support for customer managed keys. 
So media services now has the ability to uh, have custom managed keys and managed identities. Um, next one is in public preview, uh, Azure Event Grid now supports system assigned managed identities. So another feature that I saw was in public preview, uh, Azure Event Grid now has support for system assigned managed identities. Uh, what you can do is you can put a managed identity on a publisher. So when it publishes events, let's say it pushes those events out to a storage account, you could have an, a policy, an RBAC policy on the storage account that says that event grid can write to me and nothing else, or perhaps, you know, something reading the events. But ultimately, you've got a, a, a fantastic uh, ability here to restrict um, who can write to the likes of, say, uh, service bus or event hubs, blob storage and Azure storage queue. This next one is not really truly security, but I was really excited to see it. We have a thing called Azure Communication Services, uh, which lets you do things like um, sending and receiving text messages, phone calls, and so on. You know, is it a security feature? No, but it really caught my attention because I didn't even know this was coming down the pike. Apparently, it's been in, in preview for some time, but I didn't even know it's coming down the pike. But for people who wanted to build you know, custom sort of two-factor authentication mechanisms, not that you should, but I'm just saying if you wanted to, you could certainly use a, a service like this. Uh, back to the SQL topic, uh, some papers I, I noticed this last couple of weeks. One is called Security Delegation of Authority, and another one is the intro into security principles in the context of database systems. This is really cool. Here, here's why this is so cool. SQL databases have their own security model. It's not the Azure security model. It's not a Windows security model. It's not a Linux security model. They're different models, and there are good reasons for that. And so when you've got this sort of boundary between Azure security and SQL security, you sort of have to understand how to map one to the other and how to do away with that kind of impedance mismatch. And we've been trying over the last few years to really you know, help in that area. So this document is absolutely fantastic. It talks about basically how SQL database security models work. And I think once you understand that, it becomes a lot easier to map onto sort of how to use Azure security um, to complement um, SQL security as well. And the last one is Azure Active Directory only authentication for Azure SQL. So it turns out there's a little story behind this. The news about this coming out actually leaked a little bit early and people were running around trying to turn this feature on and they couldn't find it. And the reason was because it wasn't available yet, but it's coming out in April. Uh, so what this allows you to do is in Azure SQL DB, you can go in, you can say, use Azure Active Directory for all authentication from this point forward. No more SQL authentication. Very similar to the on-prem uh, ability where we can say use Windows authentication only. But in this case, we're using Azure Active Directory authentication only. That is absolutely fantastic to see because, again, it gets rid of one of those sort of legacy security things that we have as a holdout from the old days of SQL security. And that's all I have. Okay, so um, Michael had loads of stuff there, so let me do a few. So, of course, it would be wrong for me not to talk about something Azure Monitor-y. So, um, 
Express Route Monitoring um, in Azure Monitor has now gone GA. So what that is, is if you're using Azure Express Route, you can now look at um, the metrics and the config details of Express Route um, just through Azure Monitor. So it means you can see things like peerings, connections, and gateways. You can see the health status. Um, you can see important circuit metrics like availability and throughput, any packet drops, um, and other bits and bobs like that, which of course is important if you are connecting your on-premise uh, to Azure through an express route. Another thing that's gone GA is networking for Key Vault references on Windows um, in App Service and Azure Functions. So Windows apps that have virtual networks work integrations can now access restricted network vaults, um, which is really cool because, of course, the more we can restrict access to secrets, the better. And this is just for Windows at the moment, but uh, it is coming for Linux very soon. There is an issue at the moment, literally at the point of us recording this. So hopefully, um, if you're listening to this in the future, this will be gone. But I guess I should mention it because it's in the, the news update. Um, there is a known issue which prevents versionless references from automatically updating when they're behind network restrictions. It is going to be fixed soon. We're aware of it, but it is recommended just at the moment not to use both those features at the same time. But hopefully by the time, unless you're super keen and you listen to this podcast the day it comes out, which I hope at least some of you do, then hopefully we'll fix that. But just a note. Next one is uh, another GA announcement. Um, encryption scopes in Azure Storage are now generally available. So they allow you to provision multiple encryption keys in a storage account for blobs. It used to be that you could only use one account scoped encryption key. And last thing is Azure Private Link for um, Azure Cache for Redis is in GA now. So uh, Private Link, as you may know from all the other products that also have Private Link, it provides private connectivity from a virtual network into your cache instance. Oh, by the way, I know some people say cache in my part of the world, I say cache. But what it means is that you can actually access the cache uh, without going putting your data through the public internet. So uh, what this means specifically for this one is that you can connect to an Azure cache for Redis from a virtual network. Um, now, uh, that's often a preference for customers to just not have things go out to the public internet. Some customers may need that for regulatory purposes um, or just to meet their internal security standards. So again, if you've been waiting for that, here it is. And that is all of my news for this week. All right, now we've got the news out of the way. Let's turn our attention to our guest. This week we have Chuck Enstall, who is a Azure Security Architect. He's a global black belt, and he's here to talk to us about sort of some of the questions that he's seen from customers and some of the some of the areas of perhaps of friction or areas where there may be a little bit of uh, a little bit of a knowledge gap. So before we get stuck into it, Chuck, you want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself, how long you've been at Microsoft, what you do? Uh, thanks, Michael, for having me. I appreciate it. So, yeah, I've been at Microsoft for a little over 13 years in total. I'm a, a retread, so started in 2005, left, went to spent a number of years at Apple, and then uh, came back into a one of the earlier uh, CSA roles when Azure was still in incubation. Um, always had a focus on security and then uh, jumped into the Azure security architect role. Uh, myself and my colleague, Tom Quinn, were I think the, the first two guys, uh, Tom was there before me, uh, kind of doing this on, on truly a global scale. And then 
uh, we started to add some folks as the uh, field realized this was a pretty valuable role. And so, uh, in fact, Mark uh, Simos was one of my interviewers. So I really had to slide some cash under the table in order to get to this role with Mark. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, I've always been in a technical pre-sales role at Microsoft, uh, mostly focused around Windows Server and uh, everything that goes along with it. So domain services, remote desktop services, certificate services, things like that. But yeah, I've been doing this role now since uh, probably uh, 2018. One of the things that we've mentioned is this, this notion of global black belt. Um, so, so what is a global black belt and what is your, your role? Yeah, so great question. It, it's, it's actually a, a title, a moniker that we, at least maybe I, typically don't use with customers because it has very little relevance or context. But the, the understanding is that you're kind of a resource of last resort, potentially, uh, someone who, uh, if there is no one else to ask or have a question answered, uh, you, let's let's go to the global black belt. So we're a point of escalation uh, from the field, uh, and we kind of sit in between our, our engineering team, so the CXP, CXE, uh, you know, the product groups themselves, and and try to keep some of that uh, constant incoming flack off of their plates, so that that we can answer that and go deep, and potentially across a number of products, features, solutions that Microsoft offers. So we're, we're not looking at it in a siloed way. And we're looking at things that are in Azure, things that are on premises, client, server, both, uh, things that are in other clouds. So we kind of help tie it all together uh, with the customer. The only thing we don't do is anything really hands-on. We're not consultants that we we offer that up for either the our CEs uh, or MCS or something like that, or or a qualified partner to actually do the finish the implementation or CXE. All right, I really had to kick this off with a question. I want to get your, your, your view on it because I see this all the time with customers um, across the entire spectrum. And that is that there's often quite siloed, and you sort of mentioned the word, you know, it's quite siloed areas of expertise. Like we'll be designing something with a customer looking through the business requirements and so on. And then we'll get the security guys in and they say, yeah, 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 you know, we need to do this, that, and the other. And then we'll then say, oh, but we can't do this because we need the networking. We need, we need the networking folks. Mm -hmm. And then the networking folks say, well, we need the identity folks. So, I mean, do you see this as well, where there's almost this, almost these walls between security, networking, and identity? I mean, do you see this getting better or is this just something we're going to have to live with for a while? So, yeah, so it's a great question. And I see it every week. It has gotten better. If you if you look back decades, it, it was very siloed. It has gotten better if there's one organization inside of a company that is siloed more than any others. It oftentimes is security. Um, we'll go in and we'll work with an organization trying to remove some blockers, you know, increase their agility, <laughs> velocity, whatever you'd like to call it. And uh, so you look around and they've created a cloud center of excellence or whatever they call it. And you've got all the appropriate stakeholders from, all, you know, so uh, application architects, uh, storage folks, networking, and then, you know, where's the security folks? Eh, we never invite them because they're just, you know, crotchety. They're, they always just say no, they don't understand cloud. And, and that's really a miss. And then you say, well, here is probably why we're having these issues, right? Why security is saying no. So, yeah, I, I do see that silo. It's still going on. Uh, when we do come in and have conversations about uh, a security topic, if we're, you know, we start to ask ahead of time, make sure the account team invites all the appropriate stakeholders because we don't want to get five, 10, 15 minutes in and we start talking about something. And then 
uh, it moves to identity and they go, hold on, Chuck, we, we don't have our identity folks on the, on the call. Ouch. Well, well, why? I mean, it's, uh, it's no longer that siloed. It is something that's very fluid. We have to have all those folks together in order to really make progress. And it gets to a point where you can't say, well, that's really not what I do. There's no longer a hard, clear cut, uh, my job, not my job type of thing. And it, we see that in organizations still. It is, it is getting better. But we also see that oftentimes in, inside of Microsoft. So I, I think it is getting better. Uh, we're striving to do that internally. We're, we're actually helping our customers kind of understand that. Invite the network folks, invite the identity folks. Even though if you, you don't think they're required, it's good for them to know, right? Kind of cross train. The same thing, invite the security folks early and often. It, they're going to become your best friends. It's going to be easier for them to sign off um, and produce a, a risk report on a particular application if they're involved and they feel they're a stakeholder. So it is a, still a siloed approach. I think it is getting better. I think it's just going to take some time. Yeah, and, and uh, the way the way that I like to to think about this is like, you know, I, I feel like we're redrawing the lines. There will be some new lines, right? Hopefully not as siloed as we've been, but like the lines that were, we really haven't questioned them since like, I don't know, the late 90s, early 2000s when enterprise computing, you know, kind of took over from uh, mainframe and desktop. Like, I feel like we're going back and questioning stuff that was being settled when Active Directory came around. So I'm curious, Chuck, like as, as organizations kind of embark on DevOps, which is a merging of the two cultures and, and DevSecOps, which is the merging of the three to make sure it's, you know, reliable, it's, it's um, performant and meets the, the business requirements and it's secure. Like, are you seeing progress within there or is it, you know, still too early to tell? I'm, I'm kind of curious how, how that plays out and also the sort of cloud ops versus, you know, on-prem ops as cloud teams kind of bring in their own security people. So I'm curious what you're, what you're seeing in those spaces, in the emerging Boy, space. So Mark, that is a excellent uh, point. Um, and there's still some confusion around that. I, I think largely because uh, security folks, networking people, they've never considered themselves any sort of a developer or scripter or automation person, right? That was for IT operations or development. Uh, yeah. th that's, that's another one of those, I think, pillars that really needs to be understood at some fundamental level that this idea of being able to write a simple script, and that's PowerShell, you know, Azure CLI, whatever it is, um, bash script, you, you, you need to have some competency there. Uh, and that's going to make things better all around. And by the way, I love to use the word sec DevOps. I like to put security first. It's more important, but, uh, <laughs> uh that really, I've, I've given up on that. DevSecOps seems <laughs> I just to like everything. And I'm like, you it know, is. I was yep. going secure DevOps, I'm, but I'm now DevSecOps. <laughs> yeah. I'm just trying to bring it back, but, um, but it, I think that's right. It's very, very important that um, security folks, and what we're seeing, interestingly enough, is I, I think some of the folks that are incident response focused uh, SOC professionals are, are kind of uh, ahead of that curve in many ways, but they're kind of after the fact, they're consumers of this data, uh, and then they're writing all these scripts to kind of do correlations. What we'd like to see is the security architects uh, really get into this process and integrate into those teams so that they can do that a DevSecOps process and learn from the developers, learn from the IT operations. And we have to you know, break down those walls of silos even further so that we do get good across domain, SME sharing, you know, subject matter experts sharing these uh, uh, capabilities. Hey, let me show you how to do this. Oh, good. Let me show you how to do this. And 
uh, that's when things really start to fire on all cylinders and start to move forward. We do have, I think, much more work to go when it comes there, especially just companies trying to even decide on a standardization from a from an automation perspective. And I think Terraform is really kind of leading there, but we've got folks using Ansible and Chef and Puppet and Arm. And you know, it's great that they're doing it, but um, even that starts to sometimes seem overwhelming to some of these security folks and networking folks that say, listen, you know, I'm, I'm too old for this, my career, does this really matter? So I think part of our job at Microsoft is to really show them, yeah, this can make your job easier. It can make it better. You can focus on higher order processes. So I love that call out, Mark. Chuck, how does compliance fit into all of this? The compliance is a big word, right? It means different things to different people, but what do you get asked about? Yeah, well, and thanks for that question, Sarah. And by the way, uh, good to talk with you again. It's been a month or so. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> for, for those of you who don't know, Chuck and I, I was also one of Chuck's colleagues. Um, I was, I think, the fourth person um, mm -hmm. Uh, with David Sanchez, who's been on the podcast before. Chuck's been to visit me down on this side of the world. You were very surprised when you asked for non-fat milk and they said, we have milk. <laughs> yes, I was. Uh, embarrassing. And thank you for being my cultural attache to that. <laughs> uh, it's, and speaking of David, uh, it was more embarrassing. Uh, I first met David prior to him joining the, the Global Black Belt team. And uh, we were in Madrid and uh, he took me to a Starbucks uh, and I said, how do you ask them for non-fat milk? And he kind of looked at me like, I don't think there is a Spanish word for non-fat milk, right? So even more embarrassing, I've learned. I just drink coffee black now. So so again, Sarah, thanks for that, that question. Uh, compliance is a big topic. It really has a number of different connotations depending on who you ask. Uh, I think what folks are looking for is guidance around uh, being able to comport with uh, numerous different compliance frameworks. So that could be PCI DSS, it could be HIPAA high trust, high tech, GDPR, uh, FedRAMP. Uh, there's a number of them. And, and I think it's important to, to really uh, ad address those. And it doesn't mean that you have to be able to uh, be, an, be a certified auditor on PCI DSS, go down to the nth degree on, on the details, but absolutely uh, work with organizations uh, to make sure that uh, you can show them that we have uh, an adequate amount of controls uh, inside of the, uh, the platform uh, that can help them obtain those objectives. Um, and then of course, bring in additional resources, uh, but just it's a dialogue that we have to enter in uh, into with, with organizations across the board and ongoing uh, conversation. So it's never gonna be, uh, hey, I've, I've answered this question and we should be go. Now you're, you're always gonna be compliant. The nature of cloud itself with the shared responsibilities matrix uh, makes it imperative for Microsoft to work very closely with organizations uh, across any of those compliance frameworks and make sure that we're, again, constantly staying in touch because products change uh, inside of Azure, right? The features, the capabilities might shift, new things come up, uh, which you, we just talked about some of those at the top of the, uh, the podcast. And then of, of course, the frameworks themselves change, right? So uh, that's a, it's a great question. It's something I think we need to give even more credence to and have more discussions with customers around uh, compliance in general. Yeah, I wanna um, concur with something you said about, you don't have to be an expert in compliance. Uh, one thing that I spend a lot of time with customers is building threat models for them, right? So we take a, a solution and we look at the, the threats and the mitigations and so on. 
And those mitigations map quite nicely to the technical controls in many compliance programs. And I was just working with a customer just recently, and we were talking about PCI DSS, and then yeah, you know, just sort of talks about GDPR in general, and HIPAA and high trust and high tech, as you mentioned. Just in general, just in passing, one of the uh, people on the on the call said, "Why are we learning about compliance? What? Why do I need to know about compliance?" And my my response was, "You need to understand at least what the compliance programs are." and what the implications are of these compliance programs. I don't think you need to be a compliance alpha geek. Leave that to the compliance people and the legal people. But you need to at least understand the implications that GDPR may have on your solution, or the implications that FedRAMP may have on your, you know, your solution, or the implications that PCI DSS 3.2.1 may have on your, your solution. You, you have to be mindful of these, especially if you're one of the lead architects working on the design of a system. Absolutely agree. One of the, I want to even go farther than that. Speaking of, you know, threat modeling against a compliance framework, that's the number one issue that drives me in this particular role is that I get to learn. I have the the opportunity to learn something brand new every single day. I learn it during uh, interactions with with our customers, with my colleagues, uh, and the the field, the security field, the cloud field technology is just almost seems infinitely broad to me. Uh, that uh, I get excited. I, I said, what am I going to learn new today? And in the process, maybe help someone else learn something new. So this idea of, hey, I, I really don't know compliance. And boy, there's another opportunity right, to get into a field that, you know, maybe even five years ago, you would not have had that opportunity to do so. Now it's all coming together. So I love it. I have a big question for you. Customers ask um, about how they should segregate between, say, their tenant, their, their subscription, and their resource groups. What are the general best practices that you, you advise customers to do and are there? Because big question. Oh, and how many do they need? Um, again, big, big question and may depend on the customer. But what's your general advice to anyone listening who might be trying to sort out their architecture um, in Azure from a security perspective and segregation perspective? Yeah, so it's it is a great question, and it's a it's actually a pretty heavy topic. It's uh, maybe more organizational, uh, legal things than it is technological, although there are aspects to it. But so my general guidance to to every company is one instance of Azure Active Directory. So kind of that one ring to rule them all. Um, and s sometimes we I get involved with an organization that's maybe farther down the path, uh, and maybe they're suffering because of uh, uh, decisions they'd made early on, right? And we have to unwind some of that stuff. Or, uh, you know, what's our go forward path? If we can get in front of uh, with some folks that are still in their infancy in, in use, using cloud and Azure, or even right at the get-go, then yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna say one instance of Azure Active Directory. And what we mean by that is for production, test, you know, pre-production, non-prod, dev, whatever you want to call it, everything uh, that's running in Azure, one directory infrastructure. And that's atypical from what folks have done on-premises where we used to have, you know, here's my non-prod domain, here's my production domain. And that's that was fine, but we don't have this concept of domains, right, inside of Azure Active Directory. So what we've seen uh, oftentimes, folks would do different synchronizations, right? They'd have an a directory synchronization from non-prod into a tenant and one from prod into a tenant. And it really does 
bad things uh, operationally uh, from a cost perspective, uh, from a security visibility. Uh, it, it, we start to have these identities spread out all over the place. It's confusing and confounding to the end users. So we want all that to go into one directory. And, and Sarah, as you've heard me say, say to customers uh, where we've uh, tag teamed, it, it would need to be a, a, a constitutional amendment to add another directory, right? Are there good reasons for it? Sure, but let's make sure they're really good. So let's keep with that one directory. So they have my, my identity in the cloud is a single, at a single point. Uh, and then I, I can use very, very strong role-based access controls to, to work toward that kind of zero trust architecture, that least privileged access model based on that single identity. I have non-repudiation, uh, less things to worry about, right? Less reduce the attack surface. There's a lot of benefits to a single directory. Uh, and, and then as you uh, convince folks to say, this is the way, maybe that's kind of a Mandalorian thing, but <laughs> this is the way, then everything else starts to kind of fall into place. So now I have one root management group to which I can affix Azure policy and, and policy initiatives, uh, role assignments, things like that, that can then be inherited uh, in this kind of um, nested inheritance model that we have with management groups. Uh, things start to start to kind of get easier at that perspective. And then the subscriptions. Um, I know we've we've seen a lot of folks try to pack as much as they can into a subscription and then use uh, role-based access control at the resource group levels to kind of segregate things. You know, there, there are no ch charges for a subscription. Uh, so, you know, we say, hey, why not look at segregating things, separating things based on a subscription boundary? Uh, it, it, and it gives you a lot of additional benefits as well. So I, I'm less likely to run into some any uh, sort of limitations or quotas that we see around subscriptions, um, around you know the number of role assignments that you can have, the number of uh, NSGs and things like that, that oftentimes are at a subscription level. So having that separated really frees up the amount of resources we have available, gives you a little bit extra headroom. Uh, it also is a very nice billing boundary, uh, but it also gives me the ability to really separate from a security view based on those role-based access controls. So that way I, I don't have a subscription owner who has a look into everything in the subscription where maybe I, I don't want them to have any view into this other subscription and the data there. Uh, so, so I think when we look at it, we say single tenant, maybe as many subscriptions as you're, as you're willing to, to have out there to, to use that as, a, as your first security boundary and then secure stuff even farther as you get into those resources that run in the resource groups. So it gives you quite a bit of additional flexibility and I think more granular control uh, if, we, if you do that. So, and again, taking this back to automation, uh, once we get this all automated or to some degree of automation, having a lot of subscriptions really doesn't matter anymore, right? As, uh, as far as, oh, that's too many subscriptions to manage. It, it really, at the end of the day, you're managing the resources and you're gonna have the same amount of resources irrespective of if you have one subscription or 50 subscriptions. So in following on from that, this idea of uh, subscription limitations and quotas, if, we, if we're using role-based access controls appropriately, and as we should, uh, if, if we've got these resources spread over more subscriptions, I, I'm less likely to bump into some of these, what could become very critical show-stopping limitations, such as 
the number of role-based access controls is limited per subscription. We've, you, can, you hit a boundary of 2,000 uh, role assignments that you can do for Azure resources in a subscription. And that sounds like a lot, right? 2,000. We have had customers that have hit it. So really, how do we unwind that? Start moving, your, start moving those resources into different subscriptions. So we're trying to just get ahead of these types of things, uh, kind of uh, making sure that the customers aren't painting themselves into a corner, these organizations, because you know, we'd rather have them understand long-term what they might run into six months, a year from now, or, or even further out, and, and why we were recommending multiple subscriptions so that they can make a very, very informed decision. Uh, Role-based access controls is one of those. Another uh, more network-oriented control would be these, uh, this idea of network security groups. Uh, there is a limit to uh, 5,000 NSGs or network security groups that you can have in a subscription. And again, you think, oh, 5,000. Have had customers who have hit it. Uh, seems crazy, but a lot of folks are using NSGs that are assigned to the NICs, which is perfectly legitimate, allowable, but you can imagine that there's quite a few NSGs that start to pop up. So again, if we can, we recommend, hey, potentially use on the subnets and not on the NICs, uh, maybe separate those uh, virtual machines and therefore the NICs into different subscriptions, I, I less likely to run into those boundaries. And that all, we take that in from a, a security perspective. So. Uh, I just wanted to add that uh, little bit to this idea of multiple subscriptions. Uh, it might be something really to think about as you're as you're looking at your overall governance uh, and standards for deploying in Azure. Yeah, I had a customer hit. I can't remember what the limit was because they thought that absolutely everything was always infinite, and um, turns out that wasn't correct. I mean, like you say, the numbers are you know the limits are large, extremely large, but it's still worthwhile knowing what they are um, just in case. And uh, like you say, uh, actually the solution that this one customer came up with was to basically have more than one uh, more than one subscription and the problems magically went away. So on that, we always like we always ask our guests to leave our listeners with a final thought. So what would your final thought be? Yeah, uh, so final thought. It might be final thoughts, but I guess my final thought is um, always approach uh, every opportunity uh, as, as new, as fresh. So in other words, in, in my mind as an architect, as an engineer, uh, I, I know that uh, X, Y, and Z always work. I, I would say certainly keep that, that's experiential, but approach it with the blank slate. Like this is a brand new problem, I'm gonna approach it and really think about the problem end to end, especially given that oftentimes this is brand new territory. So always come at everything fresh. Don't try to pre-solution, you know, it, within the first, you know, uh, 30 seconds of a, of a particular conversation. Uh, so, and be open and willing to think about something completely uh, new and different, some new type of approach, and always think in the, um, in the mind of an attacker, right? So, who could get to this and how? Kind of be uh, nefarious and devious in your in your own head to, to see where you can shore up those defenses. It's funny you should bring up the think like an attacker stuff. Yeah, if you have people in your organization who think like attackers, you need to be grooming those people um, to really True. work. No, I'm actually quite serious. Yes. I, I normally, you know, and Sarah can back me up here, I never interject after a final thought until this time because this is something that, I am deeply passionate about 
having worked with so many customers who design things without realizing what an attacker can actually do. And even with threat modeling, we're showing you know, the, the potential risks that an application may have. This is um, you know, a, a critically important, critically important part. If you have people who really do have that skill set, you need to be grooming them and um, helping them work with other people to make sure that they're securing the environment. Yes, yeah, a really good point. Thank you very much. So with that, let's bring this to an end. Um, Chuck, thank you so much for joining us this week. Uh, I always learn something from our guests, and this was absolutely no exception. And to our listeners out there, thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.